We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. You know, the dignity of man, I think, requires truth. And truth leads to understanding. And understanding of history leads to critical thinking. Such things are totally unacceptable to those who would deny and destroy democracy. Erasing memory is essential to securing myth. Learning actual history is dangerous, after all. Memory is the foundation of where we stand today. Think about that. That is why, instead of teaching history that might disrupt our national myths, official history is written for the purpose of reinforcing the image of of the powers that insist we all believe in them. Take a look at the ways in which America's elementary school history is taught, stuff we all know and is deeply embedded in our consciousness. Columbus discovered America. White settlement of what is now America is an unquestioned good of which we are all proud. The war against Southern independence was also a positive good. It brought our one nation together. And we went into Vietnam with the best of intentions. Myth is there to make us feel good about ourselves. That which might disturb our solid base uh, for continued power of America's established supremacy and exceptionalism is a threat. It becomes the enemy. We all heard the uh, statement, the truth shall set you free. It's a common saying in academic circles that promote academic freedom and the power of learning. It's no coincidence that under fascistic dictatorships, academics and intellectuals are targeted for silencing one way or the other. In a system other than a republic, whatever a leader declares to be official truth is at that point truth. Among the many points of wonderment about the new Trump era is how many Trump people believe falsehoods. It's no wonder that George Orwell's classic 1984 has once again become a bestseller. As our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive, uh, Rebecca Gordon uh, writes, quote, In Orwell's 1984, there was a slot in the wall at the Ministry of Truth where Winston Smith worked a memory hole into which inconvenient documents could uh, be fed to the consumed forever by a huge basement furnace. There are, it seems, plenty of memory holes in Washington these days, end of quote. And now we have not just printed documents, but websites. Digitally recorded information cannot be quite so easily erased, but the Trump machine is sure trying to do so. 
Down the memory hole, living in Trump's United States of America is today's topic of discussion, and it's extremely important. Our traditional freedoms, as envisioned by America's founders, are seriously threatened as never before. Our guest again is Rebecca Gordon. Thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. Rebecca Gordon, Ph.D., teaches in the philosophy department of the University of San Francisco. She's author of American Nuremberg, the U.S. officials who should stand trial for post-9-11 war crimes. I would suggest you add Kissinger to that list. Her previous books include Mainstreaming Torture, Ethical Approaches in the Post-9-11 United States, and Letters from Nicaragua. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Rebecca Gordon. Disneyland sure is fun, but it's not real. As Tom Engelhardt <laughs> of Tom Dispatch observed of your article, Trump's urge is to clearly establish a fantasy America. When I learned history in elementary school, it did make me proud to be an American. I'm sure that in every country where history is taught, the approved syllabus likewise is set to instill pride among its young people. In this country, we're, we're also supposed to learn citizenship. What we learned, we learned this was key, a key component of what our founders, then called founding fathers, intended. We are to be citizens, participating, yes, participating in our own self-government. That is crucial. And for that end, it was a recognized positive good that all of us become educated and learn the tools necessary for citizen participation in our democracy. Yet you write, quote, Americans have never been known for their strong grasp of the facts about their past. <laughs> Why? What has contributed to this? Has it always been that way, Rebecca? So this is a sad story, the uh, history of our grasp on history. It's interesting what you say about public education because I am myself a product of public schooling in Washington, D.C., and I agree with you absolutely, as did people like Thomas Dewey, that education is absolutely crucial for genuine democracy. The two things are, are really part of one whole. The truth is, however, that we did not actually have universal access to public education until after the Civil War. And it was actually as a result of the efforts of recently freed enslaved people in the southern United States during Reconstruction that the concept of universal free public education spread to the entire country. So yeah. many people don't know that we actually have the, eff the efforts of African Americans to thank for that. Hmm. So in the first hundred years or so of our country, Many parts of the country did have access to public education, but its origins lie in two different places, and it starts in, in, um, in New England. So the first was, before there was a United States of America, the Puritan colonists thought that it was absolutely essential that people have enough literacy to be able to read the Bible, because the Bible was the source right. of their eternal salvation. Uh. Later on, as uh, we begin to see the development of industry in places like Lowell, Massachusetts, and all over the New England area, as the textile and shoemaking industry began to really grow, we saw people coming in from the countryside to work in factories. And in the countryside, what they knew how to do was get up when the sun came up, go to bed when the sun went down. They ordered their lives to the cycle of sunlight. But in a factory, you need people to order their lives to the clock. 
and they need to be physically disciplined to stand at the machine for exactly as many hours as they're supposed to. So the first public schools in New England after the U.S. was established were actually built on factory grounds and were run by the factories to create sufficient discipline in their eventual factory workers that they could that they could discipline their bodies to basically act like machines. So the whole history of public education, as you, as you implied, is in part a history of indoctrination of one kind or another. Mm. And I mean, it's mm-hmm. not surprising. Every country wants, as sure. you say, to feed the myths of its country to the people who are going to be its future citizens. But, you know, who controls the schools controls a lot of what is said. <laughs> and one thing that that is is certainly there in 1984 and throughout recent American history is the manipulation of fear. And obviously, as as you yeah. say, you know, the danger is that once people could actually read the Bible for themselves, <gasps> my goodness, they could read <laughs> other things too. Ah, that's terrible. But you know, this this fear has been manipulated, obviously, for political fur- purposes. It's, you know, when, when FDR said, we don't think we have to fear is fear itself, I think that's what, one of the things he meant, is that fear can be manipulated, and people are whipped around by fear. And facts, real science, real history, often undermines those fears. If people find out what's underneath it, they might not be so fearful. Is is this a dynamic part of what's going on now with the you know false history that's being uh, taught and and the you know the the uh, uh, you know calling real news fake news? Fake news, absolutely. And I think you know the current round of fear really goes back to the terrible events of September 11th, 2001, uh-huh. and since that time. The Bush administration especially set out, and over almost eight years, they actually succeeded in creating a constant sense that we here in the United States were under imminent attack. And every effort was, was put in place to keep that fear going. So, for example, they established what, what a lot of people have called security theater. When you go to the airport, you take off your shoes, you take off your belt, you put your liquids into exactly a quart-sized baggie, no bigger, no smaller. And all of this is designed to remind you that you are in terrible danger and that only the government can protect you. And by the way, that also sets the stage for allowing the government to do whatever it needs to do over here on the dark side, as Dick Cheney said, in order to protect us. And in effect, it's almost as if we've been given this false promise. It's as if the Mm. government said to us, look, let us do whatever we need to do in terms of surveillance, in terms of, you know, data gathering, and in terms of torture and illegal war making, and in return, we promise that you will always be secure. Mm. But of course, it's a false promise, because nothing the government can do can absolutely prevent a terrorist from one day deciding that he's going to pack up his backpack and he and his brother are going to blow up the end of the Boston Marathon. And I say this as a person who used to run marathons, and I have no desire to be blown up at the end of a race. But the reality is that in a country where everyone has access to uh, assault weapons, everyone has access 
to the the basic sure. components of Absolutely. a bomb or Easy. even to a knife, as we saw in Portland. Yes. Yes. We the government really cannot make a promise of absolute security. It's almost as if the government has said to us, "Be very much afraid of death, but we promise you eternal life. We promise you that you will never die." And it's a lie. But that fear allows the government then to do whatever it wants to do. And certainly the Trump administration is following up on the groundwork that was laid under George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and is absolutely using fear. And in this case, it's not just fear for our imminent death from some kind of violent attack, but it's also the whole drama that has circulated around the the so-called repeal and repair and replace right. of, of Obamacare is all about generating fear in people that they are not going to be able to afford this new insurance that they finally have. The reality is more like what's happened to friends of mine who live in rural Vermont, and I have a friend who's a bicycle mechanic. She p- earns $15 an hour in rural Vermont, for the first time in many years, at the age of 60, she was able to get health insurance because of Obamacare. But President Trump is trying to convince us that, you know, black is white, green is red, and um, that care that you have, you don't actually have, but let me pull something out of my hat over here that's going to be so much better. And yes, it's based on fear. Similarly, all of the racial dog whistling and yes. code talking and outright, you know, anti-Islam, anti-immigrant, right. and anti-African-American rhetoric that we see coming on the campaign trail and now from the people in the administration, all of this is designed to remind a certain group of white people that they should be afraid. And here's the truth. The truth is that the demographics of this country are changing. There is no way to stop the fact that in another 20 or 30 years, this is not going to be a majority European descent country anymore. And that is unsettling. And it is, for many people, frightening. Change is not easy. But the demographic realities are going to overtake this country. And rather than being afraid of it, we need to find ways to embrace it and yes. to recognize that this uh, is a maturation of what the project that was begun, you know, in nineteen in seventeen seventy six and yes. seventeen eighty nine. Yes. So we we can do it, and it's about absolutely a And it's about learning and. Fear is just so powerful. We fear what we don't know. You know, when when people are racist, once they get to know actual black people, they realize, huh, they're just like everybody else. (laughs) And same with Muslims. And once uh, we're supposed to fear uh, the, uh, the ISIS and Taliban, ISIS is not good guys, no doubt about it. But we're supposed to buy into the policy that is clearly not working, and many would argue, I think rather effectively, is making it worse, making it more what? dangerous, recruiting more ISIS people. But we, if we find that out, if we the people find that out, we could undermine the policy that is, well, frankly, so profitable to the weapons industry. So, you know, we, we cannot 
truth is dangerous. No doubt. I mean, it's so much like 1984. And uh, all students of history know that while there are whitewashed, officially accepted versions of historical events, many different viewpoints of the same event can be reasonably accurate. My memory of an event may be quite different mm-hmm. from yours. But neither of us is... And we could both have been present at the same time. At the same thing. Absolutely. Memory fades. It it just does. And, you know, so it it changes our perspective. Those in power now must somehow know this. And and I wonder if they're increasingly relying on Americans to doubt, to mistrust their own memory. Could this be intentional? Yes. Well, this is an interesting question. And, of course, I don't have access to the internal workings of Donald Trump's brain. What I would say is hazarding a guess that he works more on instinct than planning. Yeah, I wonder. He about knows that. in an intuitive way what works for him. But I would say that there are people around him who are perfectly capable of understanding that. Yeah. Steve Bannon is one, Steve Miller is another. But I think that, you know, people in his circle are, are certainly capable of understanding that. The American ten- attention span and memory are very short, uh, yes. and that it's quite easy to, um, you know, to distract, to to inject new ideas into the into a conversation. And there's also the other phenomenon, which is you you probably know the expression "too broke to pay attention." Uh, no, and the reality is that for many people who are really struggling in an economy that has produced such hideous inequality. If you're working, you know, at Walmart and then a second job at the 7-Eleven, and you have to make sure that your kids are fed and clothed and get off to school the next morning, you really don't have time to pay attention to the workings of whatever is going on in Washington. It's really, it's, so that the class of people who are engaged in these conversations becomes smaller and smaller. And that also, I think, is a real problem. You mentioned teaching civics in school, and I just wanted to sort of alert you to something you might not have heard of that I think is a fabulous project. It's called Generation Citizen, and it started in Brown University, and it's now spreading around the country. And I know about it because of the kind of community-engaged learning classes I teach. But what they do is they send college students to work in local public school civics classes, partnering with the civics teachers. And the college students are democracy coaches. And they work for an entire semester with a single class. And the class spends a bunch of time in the beginning of the semester trying to decide what is one really important issue for us, for our families, our communities, and us, that we want to work on. And sometimes it'll be things like police violence. Sometimes it'll be things like we need more bus service on the particular route that serves our school. Sometimes it'll have to do with issues in here in San Francisco of housing and homelessness. But they work on it. Then they figure out what is the change that they want to see. Then they do some research to figure out who has the power to bring about that change. Then they build a strategy for how they're going to do that. They end up doing things like testifying in front of the transit agency, testifying and going to the school board and talking about the change they want to see. 
And then at the end of the semester, they hold a democracy fair. Hmm. And elected officials and local leaders all come and see, and each group, each class has a poster where they describe what they did. Basically, what they're doing is bringing the techniques of traditional community organizing, Saul Alinsky, Industrial Uh Areas Foundation-style community organizing, into the classroom. And what happens is these students now in 8th, ninth, 10th grade have an experience of having actually participated as active citizens, not by voting, because they're not either, some of them are not legally able to vote because of their age and some because of their documentation, but by actually actively participating in the processes in their own city. And it, I think it's a life-changing and possibly society-changing program. So it's an example of something that I have a lot of respect for when we talk about the need to teach citizenship. In my ethics classes, my secret goal is that every student who walks out of there thinks of herself or himself as a citizen, not necessarily of a particular country, but a citizen of the world, someone who's engaged in forming and participating in the decisions that affect their lives and the conditions in which they live. And so many people, I think, have have just accepted that we are mere consumers. There was a one-term Republican governor of this state who changed the Office of Citizen Affairs to the Office of Consumer Affairs, and then it changed Whoa. back again. Seriously. He, are you in New Hampshire? Where are you? Yes, I'm in New Hampshire. That's where. But he was got long gone, one term. We've got it yep. back to Citizen Affairs. If you just tuned in, Rebecca Gordon is our guest. Uh, she teaches uh, the philo- at the philosophy department of the University of San Francisco. She's the author of American Nuremberg, the U.S. official should su- who should stand trial for post-9-11 war crimes. And we're talking about an article she wrote on Tom Dispatch, Down the Memory Hole, Living in Trump's United States of America. And the memory hole, of course, is from uh, 1984. And as you describe it uh, in 1984, Winston Smith becomes aware that the sole party that runs his country incessantly rewrites the past to its own liking and advantage. In fact, boy, does that sound familiar. In fact, he realizes that the the past not only changed, but changed continuously. You pose an interesting question. What happens if the rewrites of our recent history begin to come so fast that we stop keeping up? And you share the concern that if uh, the age of Trump does not end soon— I let us hope uh, the daily effort to sort out what happened from what didn't may eventually become too much for some of us. Memory fatigue may set in. Please say more about what you mean here. Memory fatigue. And it's just constantly changing what the truth is. And that was certainly the case in the 1984 book. And that seems to be the truth today. I mean, I cannot, I'm going to be 65 this summer. I cannot believe it. Oh, I'm older than you. I can't you. remember. And it, I can't remember an administration in which the president's name has so consistently been the lead story and whatever the president has said or done today has been so consistently the lead story in every newscast, every hour. He has occupied center stage from the moment he was elected in a way that is absolutely unprecedented, I think. Yeah, true. And as a result, and with these quickly changing 
Now we're about to see a churning in his in his staff, so that's going to be a whole new series of you know players to keep track of with your scorecard, and um, and it's every morning you wake up to something new. You you know we, a couple we of weeks up. ago we were all astonished to find that the president had revealed classified information yeah. to his Russian guests in the White House. Now, in another time, in another administration, that itself would have been enough of a news story that it would have occupied us for weeks. If but not it's months. It's gone. It's down the memory hole because of all the things that have happened since then. <laughs> you're right. I mean, that. It really is too much to keep up with. Yeah, it is. And, and you're right that uh, that alone, that story of. I mean, imagine, you know, CIA people putting their lives at risk and they come up with these powerful secrets. And then the president himself. <laughs> but now it's sold. It's old news. It's old news. There's something else. So we just keep up. So that I don't know, it's got to be affecting our memory somehow. And before we move on to the next time, I, I just wanted to I was reminded you know about this this teaching of civics and the and the revitalization of actual citizenship and democracy during the war in Vietnam. You must remember this. Our best organizer oh, yeah. of the anti-war movement, the best organizer was Nixon himself, and I think that's <laughs> the case now. I mean, who would would there be revitalized civics now? I don't think so without Trump. So it's it's kind of reinvigorating democracy, which of course is a good thing. Uh, the technology. I mean, we we talk about memory holes, that, mm -hmm. and and I mm -hmm. actually saw the movie recently where you know you put the piece of paper in a slot in the wall and it's gone. And that's it. It's over. It doesn't exist anymore. But the technology imagined in Orwell's 1984 is, of course, really primitive compared to what we have now. In that story, paper was right. the only exactly. storage medium. When burned, it was gone. Today, of course, we have social media, the internet, and the common uh, mm -hmm. perception is that once digitized, nothing can be erased. But your research has revealed some interesting Orwellian attempts at destruction of memory beginning the day he became president. Tell us, please, what the Trump administration has done specifically to federal websites that were there when he came into office, like uh, climate change and the EPA website. You know, there's that whole understanding about climate change. There was the EPA website. So uh, what kind of Orwellian memory hole stuff did he do there? So actually, the um, Obama administration had a wonderful website, very rich, full of all kinds of links to different aspects of questions about climate change all kinds of data was available. Now, if you go to the EPA, to the EPA's um, website, and this was true starting on January 20th, and you click on the link that says uh, climate change, here's what you, you get. You get a page that says, this page is being updated. So you're asking the EPA about climate change. Here's what you get. This page is being updated. Thank you for your interest in this topic. We are currently updating our website to reflect EPA's priorities under the leadership of President Trump and Administrator Scott Pruitt. If you're looking for an archived version of this page, you can find it on the January 19th snapshot. So there's a clink, click link that you can click that takes you back to what that page looked like on January 19th, the day before Trump was inaugurated. And then you can actually see what the old Obama administration 
climate page site looked like, and some of the links probably still work. But right on top of, of that page, there's a bright red notice that says, um, this is not the current EPA net website. To navigate to the current EPA website, please go to www.epa.gov. This website is historical material reflecting the EPA as it existed on January 19, 2017. This website is no longer updated and links to external websites and some internal pages may not work. And this turns out to be very true because in addition to taking down these kinds of, you know, front front page websites, what the Trump administration has also been doing is basically delinking all kinds of government data because the, the EPA, the um, the uh, Office of for for Safety and Health, or the Occupational uh-huh. Safety and OSHA, Health Administration, yeah. OSHA, all kinds of different government agencies, they pay for all kinds of research. They maintain the access to the results of that research on these websites, and then academics and scientists refer to that research in their own citations so that people who read those articles can go back and look at the underlying information on these government websites. And what started happening is that researchers are discovering that not only are these front pages disappearing, but when people now click to the links in their articles, uh-huh. they get a page not found. Oh my. So there's a, the, the UK Guardian interviewed a woman, um, a researcher named Victor, Victoria Herman, who works at, um, the, in Arctic research, and her research has to do with the effects of climate change on what's happening in the Arctic at the North Pole. And what she, she talks about watching her citations as I wrote in the article, dissolve into, into thin air. At first, the distressed flare of lost data came as a surge of defunct links on the 21st of January. The U.S. National Strategy for the Arctic, the implementation plan for the strategy, and the report on our progress, all gone within a matter of minutes. As I watched more mm. and more links turn red, I frantically combed the Internet for archived versions of our century's most important polar policies. So down the memory hole. Absolutely. There exists this. Yeah. It's amazing. And how they just make it disappear. The the truth about climate change. No, that's not the truth anymore. It may have been the truth. Anymore. Anymore. Right. The truth changes. And what is truth anyway? You know, there's no such thing as truth. Truth is, as um, one of Socrates' interlocutors said in the Republic, truth is the um, beliefs of the strong. It's the Ooh, power of wow. the strong. Ooh. And this is exactly what we're seeing. I mean, I had my students read parts of the Republic in a graduate course this year, and it's so exactly this. This guy, Thrasymachus, is explaining to Socrates, you want to know what justice is? Justice is the power of the strong. It's whatever the strong decree. And yeah. in the same way, truth is that. It's very interesting about Socrates, too, because he didn't hold with this newfangled writing thing. He actually didn't believe that reading and writing were a good idea. Yeah. He thought that the ability to write things down would uh-huh. destroy our capacity for memory. That once we could offload the process of remembering 
to some other piece, you know, some other object, and no longer had to make the effort in our own minds, that we would actually lose the capacity to remember. Yeah, and you know, I see see that with young people these days in terms of doing research, they just Google it, and their capacity... Exactly. Ah, it's getting worn away. (laughs) It scares the heck out of me. Right, exactly. So, yes, you can Google something, but there are certain things that you have to actually have as your background knowledge, or you won't be able to interpret what you Google. You can Google the quadratic equation, but if you don't understand what it is and how to use it, you know, who cares if you can Google it? It does, it's meaningless. It's just ones and zeros, really. And I find this is true with my students that, you know, they, and it's interesting, I've actually had to change my teaching strategy for many years, I believe, I'm not interested in testing your short-term memory. So all my tests and my papers and even the quizzes were open book. I just said, you know, what I want to know is, did you understand the reading and can you apply it? But what I discovered is by the end of the semester, they didn't remember any of the basic material that we had studied in the beginning of the semester. So this year, for the first time ever, I gave a midterm exam in which I actually asked them to state in your own words the two versions of the categorical imperative, uh-huh. which are, or, you know, or, it's, or, you know, what does John Stuart Mill mean by the greatest happiness principle? And they actually, because it turns out, neurological research demonstrates that we don't so much consolidate our memories by going over something, it's in the process of trying to recall that the memory gets consolidated. So it's in that first and second effort of actually pulling it back up out of wherever memories live. And they seem to live in um, particular sets of interconnected neurons. But it's that process of actually recalling that consolidates the memory. So I'm going to give a lot more quizzes now. (laughs) And um, I'm a little horrified at myself. But on the other hand, I want people to have that stuff in their tool belt so they can deploy it when they need it, rather than having to go back and Google it when they need it. Yeah, it's that process of, of understanding it, and that's fascinating, the idea of not writing things down, because that's sort of, you know, writing it down takes the power away from the individual to to, to have that memory. I, it's, I don't, I mean, clearly this stuff doesn't come from Trump's alleged brain, but it comes from other no. people who are around. I wonder how much, right. there's a lot of history around this about manipulation of, of fear oh, yeah. and, 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 you know, wiping out memory and replacing truth with whatever the powerful say it is. Uh, it, it's fascinating. I mean, I wonder if there are, you know, centers of intellectual discipline that are researching, hmm, how can we you know, most effectively erase memory. Oh, my goodness. It's so important. Yeah. Well, we know that, for example, and this gets into my earlier work, um, I spent the first 15 years after September 11th writing and thinking about torture in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And there's a wonderful historian named Alfred McCoy who wrote a book called A Question of Torture, um, which is a chronicle of the efforts of the CIA during the 1950s and 1960s to fund academic research up and down the east coast of the U.S. and up into Canada at McGill and at Yale and a number of other places 
into precisely how to reverse engineer the brainwashing techniques that were developed in North Korea and that were used on U.S. prisoners of war in North Korea during the Korean War. And the CIA set out to figure out how they could produce the same effects in, uh, in people from whom they wanted what they called human intelligence. In other words, how to brainwash people and how to torture them. And this research was conducted for a period of a couple of decades. And in 1963, they wrote a secret manual about this, which has since been declassified and which is available on the web. It's called the KUBARK, K-U-B-A-R-K, manual. And it describes the methods that can be used essentially to take apart a human being and reduce that person to what they, they called it regression of the, of the personality. And the idea was to essentially reduce that person to an infantile state and then rebuild the person in the particular model that you wanted from them. And they, they talked about inducing this, uh, this condition of DDD, debility, dependency, and dread. <laughs> and the manual was, was republished and reproduced in 1983, and it was used as a part of the training process for the Nicaraguan Contra, who uh-huh. were the counter-revolutionary right. group that the U.S. was in those days illegally supporting in Honduras and also to a lesser extent in Costa Rica. And this is um, probably why I paid so much attention to the question of torture after September 11th, because in 1984, I spent six months living in the war zones in Nicaragua, taking testimonies from people who had survived attacks of the Contra, and I learned very clearly how these techniques were actually being implemented in a strategic, in a tactical and strategic way on the civilian population in the countryside of Nicaragua. So, and, and it there seems- has been in the past a lot of academic research on this, oh, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's going on now, too. I mean, we know that there were psychologists sure. who were working for the CIA, oh, yeah. Bruce Jessen and James Mitchell, who essentially took the CIA's work, which they seemed to have forgotten they had ever produced, and sold it back to them in, um, under a new name now called Learned Helplessness and got Ooh. $1 million for their troubles. Wow. So, yeah, the, the work, there is definitely work that is done on this. It's not just that people are pulling things out of a hat and saying, <laughs> oh, let's try this. Well, it's so reassuring to know that that's very profitable to erase people. <laughs> Yikes. And I'm reminded, you know, in 1984, if if you dared to uh, question the truth, learn something different, boy, you you are a danger. You are a serious danger. You had to be wiped out. And I can't help but think uh, academics now, people who encourage people to think critically, oh, my goodness, they are a threat. And it's like, as you were saying about, you know, the factory workers, the ideal instead of a citizen, the ideal uh, uh, person mm-hmm. is one who's consumer. just ch- consumer. Yes, who is chained to the uh, to the machine, which of course reminds me of Plato's cave. Oh, we digress quite a bit yeah. here. 
<laughs> if you just tuned in, we're talking with Rebecca Gordon, who uh, teaches at the philosophy department at the University of San Francisco, about her current article, Down the Memory Hole, Living in Trump's United States of America. I find, and there are so many instances of Trump, you know, trying to erase memory because it's not convenient. And just like, no, here's today's memory. No, here's today's memory. And, you know, just... Mm-hmm. You pointed out in your article you that... Send the, your people out to give one explanation on the talk shows, and then you just wipe that explanation out with another one. In a matter of minutes. And the new stuff is yep. the truth. The old stuff isn't the truth. Fascinating that you point out there's something called the Trump 2020 website, <laughs> which removed <laughs> such items from the 2016 campaign as his ABC interview with George Stephanopoulos. So they're trying to make that go away. Why would that be? Right. Yeah. Well, in that interview, as some people may remember, <coughs> what he did was he attacked um, Kizer Khan, who was a gold star right. father. So a gold star yes. father or mother is a parent of a U.S. Um, a US soldier who has died in the line of fire. Right. And so Kizer Khan is the father of a young man who died in Iraq. And he spoke out at the Democratic Party convention. He actually took his copy of the Constitution out of his pocket and offered it to, to Donald Trump if he'd like to have yeah. a read. And then Donald <laughs> Trump went on the George Stephanopoulos show and insulted Khan over and over again. And one of the things he did was also insult, insult his wife, Ghazala, because yes. she had stood next to Khan, and he implied that because they were Muslims, she was not allowed to speak in public, which, of course, was nonsense. Yeah, of course. But this was, you know, this is what he said. And so, but this is gone. The link to the, the interview is gone. It's just not there anymore. Another thing that's missing was um, Trump's New Deal for Black America. Oh, yeah. so you may have re- may re- remember that in the tail end of the campaign, they suddenly went, no, we never talk about black people. We need to have a plan for black people. And so, of course, the plan for black people was to rescue them from the horror that is the inner cities of the United States. Oh. You know, and this is a vision... It was a false vision even at the time, but a vision of the slums of the United States from the 1960s transplanted into the 21st century Mm. at a time when, in fact, what's happening is that many, many people of color who have low incomes are actually being evicted from the inner cities as gentrification takes place, and you'll now find them in the suburbs. But never mind. That's inconvenient. The New Deal for Black America... Well, if you go to that page now, what you'd find is, if you click on the link for it, you get the 404 page not no. found message. Mm-hmm. So that deal, whatever it was, apparently is no longer on offer. So instead of the memory hole, we have 404. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, my goodness. It's it's absolutely amazing. But we're still, you know, we can still do things. And, you know, apparently this behavior undermining citizens' ability to affect policy by severely limiting access to actual data and evidence gave birth to something called the Wayback Machine, necessity being the mother of invention. What? Of course, I remember the Wayback Machine from uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. 
Yes, I am that old. So this Wayback Machine has actually been around for quite a few years. Oh. From um, fairly early on in the existence of the, of the World Wide Web. And what it is, essentially, there are these things that are called um, worms or spiders. And they go out and they crawl the web and they essentially follow every link and reproduce all of those links. So in the Wayback Machine, it's an archive of all, not all, but as many of the web pages as these automated bots have been able to discover and capture. So it's a place where you can find things many times that are no longer available when you when you go to the um, when you go to the original site or where the original site may have disappeared entirely. So, for example, when I was writing my book about um, about torture, there was a site that I had found which had these little cartoon characters of carrots, and the carrots represented prisoners being held in Guantanamo, and it was a site that was maintained by people who had actually worked as guards in Guantanamo. And these carrots, it was called the Carrot Patch. And what these very crude cartoons showed was a group of soldiers coming in and beating the carrots in the carrot patches bloody until blood spurted out all over the place. And this was, and then there were all these comments about how funny it was, and, you know, this is, and it was a representation of the, dehumanization of the people that the guards had in their power to the extent that they were not only, you know, animals, they had become vegetables. And when I went, when I, uh, so I had seen this thing, I had the link. When I went back to find it, it was gone. But I was able to find it on the Wayback Machine. It still existed on the Wayback Machine. So this is an extremely important and valuable piece of work that's being done. So if you've lost a piece of data that you think used to be there, try the Wayback Machine. It's, um, mm. so it's an Internet archive. It's never going to be perfect because the web is changing constantly. Like the truth. But yeah, <laughs> like the truth. <laughs> the you tr know, Go ahead. this whole idea of us as consumers makes me think about something else from 1984. You remember in 1984, everyone had a telescreen. Yes. And the telescreen was in your house. Yes. And there were ones at work, too. And Big Brother or the party could always watch you. Yes. And they could interrupt your day. So, for example, poor Winston Smith is supposed to do his calisthenics. And when he, when he stops his reps early, the telescreen actually tells him to keep going. So there's this very direct observation. And in a very real way, I think that with our connected devices, we have basically invited the telescreens into our lives mm. so that all of our searches, all of our activity is being harvested. Now, they say it's yes. being harvested, you know, just the metadata and not down, uh -huh. down to the individual level. Yeah. But the truth is that we have voluntarily, voluntarily, as consumers, signed up to allow our personal lives to be shared with whoever basically will pay top dollar for them. And it's very interesting. My students have such a different attitude towards privacy really? than I do. Uh -oh. From their point of view, they're willing. They don't mind. 
if the price of their um, access to music or access to an app or a game or whatever is that somebody somewhere has their information, they don't care. And they don't, they're, they're not, it doesn't make them nervous. Now, I'd also like to point out mm. that when I ask my classes, mm. who here has read 1984? Yeah. Very few people raise their hands. It used to be, you know, part of the canon. But I think after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when there was no longer a need for this um, anti-Soviet propaganda, which is how I think public educators understood 1984, when that need was no longer there, it disappeared. So my students haven't even read it. Wow. And I think about the new, the latest uh, uh, control mechanisms for uh, televisions. There's a listening device right in there. You can just say the word you want to watch Netflix. So, and you know, that can listen to us. It, it can, all that yeah. stuff is, is very, not very, on my television. Well, that's good. I don't use it either. That's for sure. <laughs> but people, you know, we just adjust to that and it's, you know, more than a little bit frightening. And there are lives at stake here. I mean, for example, yes, you know, as, as you write, one of my favorite historians, Gore Vidal, called, the, called us the United mm-hmm. States of Amnesia. Yes, it's been going on a long time. And that's the actual title of my article. The, Not America, but Amnesia. Oh, really? Oh, I goofed, I guess. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I should fix that. Yeah, well, uh, the United States of Amnesia, it's been going on a long time. We don't want to know things that are disquieting, such as Vietnam. We purposely shunted aside the obvious lessons of Vietnam and continued to make war. And as Trump prepares yet another surge into our now longest war, Afghanistan, what must we be made to forget what we could have learned from fighting indigenous people for their country? People are going to die. People are going to die. We could have learned this stuff, and yet he's sending more people into it. Yep. And... When we say people are going to die, of course, one of the problems in the U.S.-centric view of the world, and every nation has this problem to some extent, but I think we have it to a larger extent because it's been so long since we've experienced war on our own territory. When we say people are going to die, very often what the switch that flips in the mind of an American is Americans are going to die. But of course, and it's true that you know, something like 2,000 Americans have died in the war in Afghanistan. But how many hundreds of thousands of Afghans have died? And similarly in the war in in Iraq, where, you know, the body count, there are many different ways of counting those bodies, but it's in the hundreds of thousands of Iraqis who have died as a result of our invasion. And in Afghanistan, I mean, you know, the, I think the last so, sort of European who actually succeeded in holding on to Afghanistan for any length of time was uh, Alexander the Great. Yeah. And even he didn't last. I mean, he lasted during his lifetime, but that was that. And if there's, you know, anything that history teaches us about Afghanistan is that it is not a good place to try to occupy from outside. Why we continue it to is do that? It's own country. It's the graveyard of empires, um, as I think uh, Winston Churchill exactly. may have said. Another, Precisely. Another issue, aside from the deaths of those other people, is 
uh, our banking crisis. I mean, who remembers 2008-2009? The deregulation led directly to out-of-control gambling on Wall Street and to that Great Recession. Today, Republicans in Congress are giddy with the prospect of repealing even the mild Dodd-Frank regulations. As the 2011 Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission study of the causes of the recession pointed out, it would be a tragedy to accept the refrain that no one could have seen the recession coming, because they could. (laughs) Why are Republicans in Congress so determined to recreate the conditions that led to the crisis. Why is it so important that memory be wiped out in this case? Well, in this case, because there's money to be made. As I, I mean, it's pretty clear <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, if you look at the history, the recent history of what happened after 2008 and the way that, you know, yes, um, Lehman Brothers went down, but all the other commercial, big um, commercial banks, they came out of it, in fact, as strong or uh-huh. stronger True. than before. Yes. They were, they, and so what they would like to do is to be able to go back to gambling once again yes. with other people's money in that big casino that we call the stock exchange. And it's not as though we haven't seen this. I mean, we saw it happen in the Reagan administration with the savings and loan crisis, Something very similar, yes, which very similar. essentially is big part of what led to another relatively new phenomenon, which is that we have hundreds of thousands of people living on the streets in this country. My students think it's always been the case mm. that there was a population of people who lived on the streets in the major cities of the United States, that there are always have been people living in homelessness. This is simply not true. No, right. This is actually a phenomenon that began, I mean, yes, there have always been people who had various kinds of substance abuse problems or mental health problems who very often ended up living in SROs, single-room occupancy hotels, and in parts of cities that were very poor and run down. But the, the numbers of people living on the streets as a permanent fixture is relatively new. And it's a result of the deregulation of the savings and loan um, business in the 1980s and also the Reagan administration's taking a part of things like housing and urban development, which we now have Ben Carson running, and replacing the money that went into federal housing programs with block grants to the state, oh, which yeah. could states, which could then spend that money however, however they liked, absolutely. and not necessarily on providing housing. Right. And the result is we now have this permanent class of people who live on the streets. And we could so learn from history. We saw that, and now we're seeing it again. Yes. With the with the people who lost their homes in the two thousand and eight financial cri- crash, and of course here in San Francisco, where I live, there's the yeah. added problem that there's a huge amount of money in the pockets of young technical workers that is chasing way too little housing. And so we now have the phenomenon of people who are still working for a living, who are living in tents on the sidewalk in San Francisco. Yeah, so I've heard. I was out there a few years ago, but uh, apparently it's gotten worse. There's a lot more to discuss. I got to... You end your article, uh, which is correctly titled, Down the Memory Hole, Living in Trump's United States of Amnesia. Uh, You end with this quote, the first act of resistance is to remember who we are. 
that is of great importance. Please say more about that. Yes, what I what think, can we do? I, okay, so the first thing, and you've been alluding to it all during this hour, is this to get over the idea that what we are is primarily consumers. Right. And we need to think of ourselves as actors and doers and makers, not as people who consume. And then we have to organize. And if you want to get down in the weeds, I will tell you, you know, I'm not, I've done a lot of work in electoral campaigns. It's not my favorite kind of organizing, but you don't always get to choose the terrain on which you fight. Sure. In 2018, there are going to be not only congressional elections, but in some ways, even more important are the legislative elections at the, at the state level. Yes. Because in 2020, we're going to have a new census. And by the way, one of the people who has disappeared from the Trump administration is the director of the census who left early, which means that, and has not been replaced, which means that all the planning for that census oh. is now in limbo. Oh but the 2020 census is crucial because it's on the basis of the census that all the congressional districts get drawn right. in every state by the state legislatures. Yes. So who's in those state legislatures is going to affect who gets to be elected to Congress because the Republicans now have a stranglehold on Congress as a result of gerrymandered Absolutely. districts. And we see this especially in states like Texas, but we see it all over the country. Oh, 2018 is going to be crucial both for congressional elections and for those state legislatures. In addition, we have to be on the streets we have to be out there never letting the Trump administration forget that we are watching. I went to the Science March a few weeks ago here in San Francisco, and I saw people who I think had never in their lives right, expected right. to be marching in a demonstration. And I have to say that some of, the, some of the signs were actually very amusing. There was one that says, Alternative facts are the square root of negative one. And for you math buffs out there, the square root of negative one is an imaginary number. So um, that's what it's called. So, oh, you dangerous academics. Imaginary. Oh, it's so dangerous. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, goodness. we have to find. Yes. We also have to talk to each other. We have to talk to our next door neighbors. We have to remember that we are local citizens as well as national citizens. True. Good point. These are the things I think we need to do. And keep teaching and keep learning and try to remember. Try to remember. Yes, we can do that and value memory. And don't buy into it. We can't, we can't just uh, erase it and be automatons. Well, we could. That would make some people happy. We could. We're not going to do but that. But we shouldn't. If people are interested right. in uh, hearing more for you, are there, uh, is your website or uh, how can people follow your work? Yes, I have a website called MainstreamingTorture.org. Okay. And you can also find a lot of my articles at TomDispatch.com. Tom Dispatch is part of the Nation Institute, ah. and there are a number of other wonderful authors who write for him on a regular basis, and Tom himself writes great stuff. As you mentioned, a couple of books, but MainstreamingTorture.org, you'll find all things Rebecca Gordon. Yes, and Tom Dispatch, I've had quite a few guests from there. Always good stuff. Thank you yeah. so much for being with us. Yeah. Rebecca Gordon, Professor... Thank you, Bert. Uh, this was great. All right. Down the memory hole, living in Trump's United States of Amnesia.
Changing is a real. You read it in the papers, Jackson on TV. 